This is an AMI podcast. Our voices, our stories, our community. Listen to AMI audio podcasts highlighting news, stories, and information relevant to people with disabilities across Canada. Learn more at ami.ca slash audio. Holly Bartlett could tell you exactly where she was at any given moment on any given day. Peter Parsons tells a story about a volunteer driver with the CNIB who once drove Holly home. After the fact, the driver asked Peter, she must have some vision, he went on, because she could identify exactly which city block we were on, which street, every single intersection. Are you sure, this driver implored, stunned, she really has no vision at all? No, replied Peter, she's completely blind. I'm Maggie Rahr, and this is What Happened to Holly Bartlett. Holly Bartlett was found unconscious under the McKay Bridge after a night out with her friends. The initial police investigation was wrapped up really quickly. Drunk, blind girl, case closed. The 31-year-old's death in March 2010 was ruled an accident. There's a lot of hours in there that we don't know where she was. There's parts of me that sort of died with my sister. I really would like to know what happened to Holly. Somebody knows. Episode three, Fatal Accident. Holly Bartlett wasn't average. For one thing, she was tiny. Standing at four foot 11 with a slim build, she was no bigger than a kid in grade six. Everywhere she went, she traveled with her white cane. She used a two-tap strategy, one tap to the left, one tap to the right, and so on. This way, her cane could anticipate what her eyes couldn't. Shelley Adams met Holly when they were young teenagers at a week-long camp at Sir Frederick Fraser School for the Blind. Yeah, I was in grade seven, she was in grade eight, I remember. And we shared a room, and we just hit it off right away, and we had so much fun that week. Shelley had never met anyone like Holly. And she became, I don't know if mentor is the right word, but she became somebody I really looked up to and wanted to sort of be like. And um, she had such a wonderful spirit and humor and confidence, I found, even though she was still dealing with a lot of changes in her vision and learning to cope with that. Holly's confidence astounded Shelley. Even then, she was quite comfortable going out and taking the bus and you know, going to, we went to the mall, we met up with a friend who had more vision and could help us, you know, kind of navigate the mall better. But just her confidence in in high school, in, you know, let's go catch the bus and go to the mall. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> really? Okay, uh, sure. It was like the opposite of me. Every time I spent time with her, I'd go home and, and feel that confidence and positivity. This is a recurring theme. Holly's blindness didn't define her. It seemed more like a fact of her existence, like freckles or a gap between front teeth. Everyone who knew Holly talks about her agility and confidence navigating with her cane. And if you have doubts, you can see it for yourself. This short film serves as a window into Holly's life in 2009. It was Kim Hart McNeil's final project of the year in her journalism program at King's College. Kim thought it might be worthwhile to follow a blind student, 
so she approached the CNIB to ask if anyone leapt to mind. Peter Parsons got the call. There was one person he thought of immediately. Here's Holly. I was working one summer at uh, an organization, and so I had a, the orientation and mobility instructor from the CNIB come in and show me around the office, show me where um, you know the elevator was in relation to my cubicle and the washroom and all of that stuff. So we were just checking out the washroom where that was, and this lady walks by and she's like, oh, there's no flies on you, you can get to the washroom. And I'm kind of like, wow, um, you know, I can do a whole lot more than just get to the washroom, but if that's all it need, I need to do to impress you, then I just made my day. Kim's video is like a time capsule. It allows us to see Holly, to hear her voice, to get a sense of who she was. But Kim couldn't have predicted that her short documentary would become invaluable. The video shows Holly marching down her driveway using her cane with the conviction of an athlete. The exact same driveway police believe she wandered down, confused, drunk, and lost. Reading through the police files, there was one page in particular that troubled me. It appeared in a bundle of notes that were handed over to the medical examiner's office after Holly died. At the top of the page, read these words, accident, non-traffic, fatal. How would those words impact the medical examiner's approach? If the cause of death had already been determined by police, how exactly does that affect the study of the body? It is eminently clear from the quality of detail and specificity and language of the report that the doctor who performed the autopsy went to great lengths to ensure every single point was properly cataloged. In particular, I was struck by the details captured in the doctor's assessment of Holly's endocrine system. Dr. Marnie Wood writes, the pancreatic parenchyma is a lobulated pink tan with areas of hemorrhage. No masses or fibrosis are present. The adrenal cortices are a golden yellow of appropriate thickness and the medulla are thin and tan. The thyroid parenchyma is a uniform brown and free of masses and cysts. The pituitary gland is unremarkable. There was another detail in the doctor's autopsy that hasn't left me since I first read it. The heart weighs 200 grams. Holly's cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. Here's Dr. Wood's summary from the autopsy. This 31-year-old woman was found underneath the McKay Bridge, she had a history of congenital blindness. She was below a concrete portion of the bridge onto which there was access by foot. The height was approximately 20 feet. Police investigation revealed no suspicion of foul play. Autopsy revealed fatal injuries of the brain. Postmortem x-ray revealed fractures of the right lower leg. These injuries are attributable to a fall. We had no reason to doubt Dr. Wood's professional conclusion, but I still had questions. Namely, is it possible to be misled by a note from police about the cause of injury? How does that communication work? How could you not be influenced by the police interpretation of what had happened? Would the determination that a fall had caused Holly's injuries still be reached if that explanation hadn't already been suggested? I wrote to the province's medical examiner's office. I asked to speak with Dr. Marnie Wood, who conducted Holly's autopsy. I also asked to meet with the chief medical examiner of Nova Scotia, Dr. Matt Bowes. This is the reply I received. 
Dr. Bose respectfully declines the opportunity to participate in your project. On the death of Miss Bartlett, generally speaking, the Nova Scotia Medical Examiner's Service does not speak about specific cases they help investigate outside of a courtroom setting. Those conversations are reserved for the family of the deceased. I replied, explaining that the Bartlett's are in full support of our investigation, and would they be open to meeting with them instead? But I never heard back, and I never pursued it. With that, another door closed. Still, we needed direction to be able to understand the medical examiner's findings, to ensure that no one was led astray, even if unintentionally. So Peter and I sought help from an academic at St. Mary's University in Halifax. So we're here to see Michelle Patrick Wynn. She works in the forensic science department here at SMU. Okay. So we're looking for some help in kind of parsing through like, what does this autopsy tell us? And here's the thing that's um, kind of different about this interview than everything else that we've been doing together so far right. is that she doesn't know anything about the case. Right. We're not telling her that this is Holly Bartlett because we want to have as much objectivity as possible. Mm -hmm. So she's been given like a redacted set of a few pages, just kind of like the Coles notes of what right. they found. We wanted to see if Dr. Patrick Quinn would read Holly's injuries as the result of a fall without being pointed in that direction. Or could Holly's injuries be explained in another way? Were there any signs of a struggle? Peter and I walk into the university. Barring a few cleaners, the building is nearly empty because it's the middle of summer. We find Dr. Patrickwin in a lab on the third floor. Dr. Patrickwin? Hey! Hey, sorry to interrupt your work. I'm Maggie Barr. Nice to meet you. Really nice to meet you. Hi, I'm Peter Parsons. I see the files oh. here that uh, that we gave you in your, some of your handwriting, I presume. What did you learn from, from reading those documents? In first reading them, I saw that there's obviously been some blunt force trauma, for sure. And then the other thing that I found that was interesting when they were doing the full body review was just like the series of bruises and things that all over the body, between the arms and I think the hips and the ankles and the legs and things like that were, that were all in different phases of you know, healing. Which tells you about the timeline. Yeah, and it's exactly like, if they're healing, obviously that happens, you know, before death and, you know, why were all these bruises there? And then why is it that uh, it says, you know, basically the blunt force trauma to the head could have caused death because there was a fair amount of hemorrhaging. But you want to wonder, you know, blunt force trauma to the head, other bruises on the body. So, you know, is there a connection there? But when you're doing the autopsy, you want to be impartial and just look at the evidence as it is before you and then let the investigators piece together the puzzle uh, and hopefully it'll match up to, you know, what you've seen. And in this case, from what you've seen, it sounds like there was a cluster of bruises that happened in the same timeline. There were some that all happened in the same timeline and then there were some at all different phases of, of healing. Okay, gotcha. So that would have happened weeks, days before death, depending on how that person, you know, heals and responds. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, Dr. Patrick, when you say blunt force trauma, I'm just really trying to understand. So, for example, if I like, if I were to smash my head against the corner of the desk, like, that'd be blunt force trauma. No, so that'd be more because um, of the sharp edge that mm -hmm. you could see. There's going to be an impression there. So, normally, when you think of blunt force trauma, it's like a blunt. If you hit your head in the middle of the table or the middle of the floor or something that's more of a flat surface and that doesn't have a rough edge. It's the difference between using a piece of two by four, using the blunt side of it or using the edge. 
you're going to get into a lot more force on that nice small edge of say the table. So where you hit the table is obviously going to be different, you know, blunt force. It can be some sharp force. Right. So um, I, the word that keeps coming up is flat. Yes. People think of blunt force trauma as somebody's, you know, running around wielding something at you. And blunt force trauma can come from obviously a blunt flat object as coming in contact with the head or any part of the body. Right. But it also happens, you know, if you run into the floor, or if you run into other flat surfaces, the, the object doesn't have to be the one that's being coming into contact. You can be the one moving as well. Right. And with the limited information you have, you can't tell whether it was the bod the force of the body or the force of an object. Like yeah. is that something you can you can parse out? If there were some sort of identifying characteristics to whatever it was they came into contact with. But other than Like being what would you look for? What would patterns. I patterns. Okay. Patterns. Uh, think about if you were to say fall down and you fell on a Heating grate in okay, an old right, house. Right, right. Right? You know, that would leave a pattern. Right. The earth was frozen where Holly was found. If she had fallen, would there be any patterns? Something police could have looked for to confirm that she began at the top of the concrete abutment, connecting suspension wires to the bridge overhead, and then fell from it to the ground below. Can you tell what side of the head the blunt force trauma happened? I know it said there was a large cut at the hairline. Yeah, and other contusions and abrasions about the head. I know that there was some trauma around the frontal and temporal regions of the brain. So if it's not specifically uh, right here, you would be able to tell where it was. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, just so something impacted that part of the body or the body impacted something at yes. that location. Absolutely. And the other side to that is when um, I'm not a neurologist by any stretch, but you can see that there has been some hematomas or bleeding yeah. within the brain and, and all of that causes pressure and things like that. So, And a that, hematoma is a clot which can result from a major injury like this, right? Yes, exactly. And it's, um, it's basically looking at the, it's hard to visualize just by reading a paper, but looking at the location of that hematoma right. or look at or herniation. Uh, whereas part of the brain has moved because of pressure, maybe. Looking at all those things can help you sort of go backwards and say, this is where I can pinpoint maybe where the trauma came from. Right. So that's the information that we're trying to get at. I have a bunch more information that I was wondering if, if you're interested and available, if we were to give you everything that we have, is that something that you'd be willing to kind of look into and, well, and tell us what you think. So we have all of the medical examiner's reports as well as the um, the medical reports. I just wonder with your expertise, if you might be able to in interpret more than we can. I can always comment on what I can see or what I can understand from you know the medical examiner's report that, or the, or the uh, doctor's report. That would be super valuable to us. So in your role, would you ever make guesses or presumptions about how a certain injury occurred? Oh, as a forensic anthropologist, absolutely. We leave Dr. Patroquin with our giant stack of paperwork. In addition to the autopsy report that she's already reviewed, we leave her the police files and the documents from Holly's time in hospital before her death. As we're walking out, I just need to check in with Peter. After all, he had just heard in exacting details the injuries that claimed Holly his friend's life. 
Was that okay for you? I mean, you must find it hard to be like considering these details about your friend. Yeah, that that is definitely hard, but when she said about the bruising, for example, I I was kind of what was going through my mind that all the bruising and the blunt force trauma, like I was almost like wondering, like, could you tell from the bruising that there might have been like a struggle that bruises resulted from or an initial fall yeah. after the blunt force trauma. Yeah, yeah me too, because uh, on the other hand, it's like a lot of the stuff in the medical report that shows like all the various interventions that, you know, when they were trying to keep her alive, right? right. So it's like all these IVs and the bruising and stuff that can come from that. It, and now I just really hope that giving her the medical report, it was the right decision. Yeah, you know? well. It was really hard to not think about imagining various versions of what might have happened, you know, mm -hmm. as she was talking. Well, my mind was going in many different places, like, you know, how she could get blunt force trauma from a high fall. I'm, I still can't imagine the abutment theory. As we wait for Dr. Patroquin to review the full documents, we have to shift focus. So Peter and I split up on some tasks to try to cover more ground. Peter and Brian go back to the parking lot just outside Convoy Towers to try and reconstruct what he learned from the cab driver. So I was parked over on that side. And then, right. And when he said he came up and he drove around. As Brian is retelling the story the cab driver told him to Peter, they run into Andrew Seeley, Holly's old friend and roommate. Brian. Hey, Andrew. Hey, how are you? Oh, that's Andrew. Good, yeah. Hey. Good to see you. How good are you? Good. What's going hey, Andrew. on? It's Peter. Hi. Hey, Peter. I'm Andrew Seeley. I'm Holly's friend, or I was Holly's friend. Uh, and her roommate. Um, we were roommates for three years. Andrew Seeley and Holly bought the condo together, not as a couple, but as friends. Since Holly's death, Andrew's thought about selling the place, but he still lives there today. In the parking lot, Peter and Brian tell him, with the Bartlett family's blessing, once again, they're investigating the case. I think she's ready to look into what's, uh, what really occurred with Holly. Okay. Yeah, it yeah. just never sat sat well with us all this time. And after talking to Marion, we're gonna yeah, we're gonna look into it a, a more again. Yeah, yeah. My first memory of seeing Holly was grade five. She was a year ahead of me. She was in grade six. There was a field trip that day. Anyway, I was in the front seat, and Holly was also in the car. So I looked kind of behind me, and Holly was in the back seat. She had partial sight at that point. I kind of waved to her or something and she smiled back and that's my, like my earliest memory of her. We kind of knew of each other. I guess the story really takes off in high school. We were both kind of taking the same bus to school and we just kind of had a good friendship, just kind of blossomed from there. Andrew tells us Holly was social, loved having a few drinks and she could handle them too. One friend jokingly called her Bottles Bartlett, a play on her taste for fun and a few drinks and maybe two, the thick Coke bottle glasses she wore before she'd lost her vision. Andrew said Holly was no stranger to having a night out on the town. She'd meet friends, go dancing, have a time. And always, she'd make it home on her own just fine, by bus or by taxi. Andrew tells a story that illuminates the fierceness of Holly's independence. She'd been out one night. As the hours grew late and Holly didn't arrive home, Andrew got worried. So he called her just to check in, make sure she was okay. Holly tore a strip off him, told him to back off. She didn't need to be taken care of, to be checked in on. 
She was insulted and hurt, and she took it out on her friend, who, in all likelihood, would have made the same call if Holly was sighted. But we all have our blind spots, and this was one of Holly's. If Holly was so confident and experienced getting around the city on her own at night, if she could identify every single block and intersection as she passed it without seeing, how could she possibly become lost in her own driveway? Around seven o'clock the next morning, a night shift worker came across a few items in the parking lot at Convoy Towers. A wallet, an iPhone, lip gloss, and loose change. The man who found it also lived in Holly's building, and he later told Brian the items were strewn in a line, as if they'd been thrown. I asked Brian just to be sure I've got it right. So Holly's cane and the $5 bill were found just along one of the hills uh, next to the abutment below the McKay Bridge. But what's really strange is that some of her personal effects, including her wallet and phone and chapstick, were discovered way back the path, just outside her condo entrance. Why the five and not the other items that were in the bag that were found strewn up a convoy, like the chapstick and all this stuff? How did that get up there when she was down here? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? The items were found just next to parking spot number 16, the last in a line of parking places and the nearest to the condo building's front door. The fact that Holly's wallet, iPhone, and a few other items were found in a cluster near the entry to the building didn't appear to cause concern for police. It only added to their story that she'd been lost, confused, drunk. But if Holly's phone and wallet and lip gloss made it nearly to her front door, why couldn't she? We tried to get Holly's phone to find out if there was anything on it that could help tell us where she was after midnight that night. Maybe she'd received a text that could help us zero in on her location. The Bartlett's kept these items for a few years after Holly's death, but eventually her phone was wiped and sold. iCloud didn't yet exist in 2010, so without the physical phone itself, there was no way of tracking what might have been on it. Then there's the $5 bill. I'd heard that people with vision loss have systems of handling cash to keep the bills separate and identifiable. I go to meet Shelly to see if she can teach me. Maybe there's a detail that was overlooked that could deliver us answers. Shelly? Hi. Hey, it's Maggie Rar. Hi. Nice, nice to meet you. you. I'm sitting in Shelly's backyard on a beautiful summer afternoon. It's 35 degrees and there's a breeze cutting through the heat. I wanted to ask you about all of the cool ways of moving through the world that blind people have specifically about like handling cash. Mm -hmm. I did bring some present day cash and some 2010 bills ah, so that we could okay. kind of do both. Yes, it was different in 2010 than it is now. In 2013, the government of Canada replaced paper banknotes with polymer bills. They have a plastic feel and they're harder to tear. Why don't we start with the modern bills? There you are. So tell me what you're feeling here. Okay, so I'm feeling the newer bills, yeah. more plasticky. They have a really nice tactile marking on them. One set of six dots of braille. Yeah. So for people that read braille, they would know what that means. A five only has one set of dots on it. Okay. So this is a 10, it has two sets of braille dots on it. 
And then a 20 has three sets of those bumps on yep. it. So that's how you would tell with the new type of money. Okay, so I'm just gonna pull out the old bills out here. Okay. Here, I'm gonna hand them to you. Mm -hmm. Think that's a 20, Yep. but I don't trust it. It's worn down. Myself and a lot of other people who are blind or partially sighted, fold your bills in a certain way that makes sense to you. So I have a 50, a 20, a 10, and a five. I would keep the 50 out flat. Yep. As the biggest denomination. Yep. So the 20 I fold like this, lengthwise in half, so the top meets the bottom. The 10 is done this way. I fold it widthwise from left to right. Then the five I fold in quarters. So similar to the 10, I will fold it widthwise from left to right, and then fold it again from left to right. That way, when I reach in my wallet, I can easily feel what's what. Can you tell me why this information is relevant to Holly's case? I know Holly was a really responsible person, and I know that she used a system, you know, similar to this when she did have cash. Right. So if she had cash on her that night, she would have had it folded in a certain way so she knew what bills were what. Right. I also know she didn't carry a lot of cash on her. She preferred to use a card because it felt more secure to her. Right. But my understanding is she did have cash that night. There's an extremely sensitive question in this case that Peter and I have been trying desperately to avoid since day one. We know that Holly was never on the McKay Bridge that Friday night. She didn't jump, as many would have assumed, immediately after she was found below it. But the question of potential self-harm has to be ruled out. Here's Peter and I discussing it all with journalist Tim Biscay. Tim, when you were beginning your investigation, how was the subject of suicide raised? That's the first thing people think of when they see a body oh, under course, a bridge. Right. That was never a police theory. However, it was raised. I'm not sure who brought it up, but I, I remember that Holly was on antidepressants. We know that Holly was taking an SNRI at the time of her death. I think it's important to note here that in all likelihood, a much higher percentage of the population takes medication to manage anxiety and depression than we might guess. Stigma keeps people from sharing this information despite its ubiquity. In any case, we know Holly was devastated at the time of her death by the prospect of losing her father. Her dad was sick, I, yeah, I remember legal. that. Yeah. I heard Holly's mom, Marion, and her Dad Wayne had a tough year. Our life took a turn in 2009. Wayne's brother, 60 years old, died in his sleep of a massive heart attack. The 1st of June, Wayne's 86-year-old mother was diagnosed with cancer. And she passed away. When you think it couldn't get any worse, it did. We found out that Wayne had lung cancer and there was nothing they could do to, for him because the cancer was on, was too close to his heart. Wayne was so sick, so sick. We know that Wayne and Holly were particularly close. Kim and Amanda both shared just how intensely this diagnosis struck Holly. But even though her family life was thrown into chaos and uncertainty, Holly was steadfast. She went to that end of year celebration and she had plans for the very next morning. Holly had made 
an appointment for Saturday morning. Yeah, it was a class, a, a, like a study, study group, group, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes, and the last time she had seen her father, which I think was Thursday night. She'd also she, said she, she had she said, to go oh, back. She said, I have something to do tomorrow, but I'll see you on Saturday. It seems unthinkable that Holly wouldn't show up to see her dad as planned. We can't know what Holly was really thinking or feeling that night. The same is true for all of our interior lives. We may present ourselves one way, but our inner lives are a mystery. Still, we can listen to those who knew Holly best. Here's Peter. I don't think I was ever out on the balcony. Peter is standing with Holly's old roommate, Andrew Seeley, on the balcony of the condo they once shared on the 13th floor of Convoy Towers. I think I would remember such a beautiful view. The view is beautiful. The McKay Bridge leading to Dartmouth on the right, the Bedford Basin stretching just beyond the lights of the pier, the city's bedroom communities of Fairview and Clayton Park reaching up beyond the hills to the left, and the sun spilling its dusk light over it all. So high up, of course, you're on the top floor here. Holly sits of humor, it was always, the view is what sold her on the place, obviously. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so. I could hear her saying that. Yeah. This is a hard conversation to have, but it's one people who knew Holly had to confront to be certain. Do you remember were the police ever out on your balcony? No. No? Okay. Yeah. That was one theory that was actually thrown around early on, was right. that uh, it was a suicide on right. the bridge. And I think your father was the guy that sort of said, no, that, that seems ridiculous because we're here on the 13th floor. Right. If that was really the case, then, you know, right. this would do just the same job. Like, you know. Right. For Shelley, this question of self-harm was never even a consideration. Here she is talking with Peter. You know, she's found under a bridge. The suicide thing has come up, and mm. I wanted to just ask you about that being good friends with Holly. Uh, I mean, no. <laughs> I right. just don't think I, that would have never crossed my mind. Obviously, I don't know how she was feeling that Friday night, but I know she had all a bunch of plans and things she had to do the next day, and she went home at midnight. She could have stayed out till 2 and kept drinking. Her friends didn't feel like she needed an escort, and they're the ones that know her the best when she's out in a social situation like that. Uh, but she was going to be seeing her dad the next day. Mm -hmm. She had a study group the next day. She was just about to, you know, graduate from her master's program yeah. at that particular time. Her social life was really active. And... Right. Shelley, is it clear in your mind the suicide possibility that definitely didn't happen? That's not what happened that night, for sure. Not a chance. Back in the first weeks of researching this case, our team secured an early lead. The chief of the Halifax Regional Police agreed to sit down with us for a one-hour interview to review the investigation into Holly Bartlett's death. Chief Jean-Michel Blais wasn't leading the force when all this took place back in 2010. That was Chief Frank Baisley. But Blais was familiar with the case. In 2014, the police force agreed, after public pressure and ongoing urgent concern from the Bartlett family, to seek out an external evaluation. It would be an operational review, and it would be conducted by the Ville de Quebec Police Service. At the time, the police said they'd asked that specific detachment to examine the case, because it's a city that also has two bridges. While this may be true, it was a curious justification given the strange circumstances surrounding Holly's death. Nevertheless, the review was carried out, and the Ville de Quebec police officers who conducted it 
Captain John L. Nolan and Detective Sergeant Robert Moray filed a report. It was a stark indictment, starting with the cane. The report found that it was possible police could have missed finding the cane themselves. But what was called into question was the full two hours it took them to meet Rendell Pittman and his family to collect the evidence. Here's an excerpt. Knowing the nature of the item to be located and the fact that the white cane is fluorescent due to the reflective covering, the Quebec City Police would have searched the scene after sunset with a light source. The reviewers believe that two hours for police to retrieve items found by citizens and linked to a suspicious death case is far too lengthy. In the early stages of the investigation, one of the primary officers mistakenly believed Holly lived in Kencrest, the building overlooking the site where she was found, instead of up on the 13th floor of a condo building more than 300 meters up the road. The report authors zeroed in on the Halifax Regional Police Force's failure to appropriately seek out potential witnesses. More than often, canvassing the neighborhood is an excellent source of intelligence and information for any type of investigation. In a case of a suspicious death, this should be conducted as soon as possible in order not to lose any potential witnesses. In this investigation, some residents were only canvassed on August 12, 2010, more than four months after the occurrence. The police kept telling the Bartlett's and Peter and Brian that they had canvassed. But the report published this damning revelation. At that time, only six residents were met by the police. Six residents. Four months later. Let that sink in a minute. Holly died on March 28th. It took Halifax Regional Police until August 12th to seek out potential witnesses. And even when they did, they only spoke to six people. The report continues. Considering the location where Holly was found, all residents of Kencrest, as well as the residents along the possible routes journeyed by Holly that night, should have been rapidly met by the police officers. That wasn't the only failure illuminated in the report. It's no secret social media, Facebook accounts, and Twitter are a trove of information when trying to establish a timeline for any victim's previous 24 hours. Holly's Facebook account and computer were analyzed in January and February of 2014. It is the reviewer's opinion that this task should have been completed during the first hours of the case. What should have taken place in the first hours instead took four years. And then, there's the information police were given, but turned away from. Context and information, specifically from Peter Parsons. The report goes on. Police should have consulted another member of the CNIB in order to inquire about orientation skills of a blind person and possible effects of the consumption of alcohol in regards to those skills. The scene could have been visited by the CNIB member in order to assist in the investigation. There were still other problems with the investigation. The leading officer brought Holly's family to the site where she was found on the same day as her funeral. He was taking time off and going to Jamaica, he told Marion, and this would be his last chance to show her the site. Unless, of course, she was willing to wait the two weeks until he got back from his beachside vacation. The Bartlett's were despondent and frustrated. That's when one officer made a suggestion Go see a psychic, they said. A medium. Maybe you'll get some answers there. 
The review outright slammed that approach. The Quebec Police Service Major Crime Unit does not act on information provided by mediums based on the fact that this information is not considered as real evidence. And most importantly, it can't be used in court. I remember hearing about this report in the media at the time, back in 2014. But what I didn't understand then was the meaning of operational review. The report was never meant to determine whether Holly's case should be reopened or not. In conclusion, it states, To the best of our knowledge, and after reviewing the entire file, it is impossible for the reviewers to detail all actions taken by Holly that night. Nevertheless, we can only notice the absence of any evidence which would make us believe Holly's death resulted from a criminal offense. Finally, it reads, The Quebec City Police Service would have concluded the file as accidental death only after evaluating and investigating all possible avenues. But how can the finding of accidental death be held up when all possible avenues specifically were not investigated? This is just one of many things I'd hoped to learn during our one-hour meeting booked with Chief Blay. But in mid-August, after many messages back and forth and a few delays, the police withdrew. This was unsurprising, but it was a blow. I still needed to find the entry points to the abutment. It was a fenced-in, locked area. In 2010, there was spray paint covering the massive concrete structures before it was refurbished. We knew there were two holes in the fence, one about two foot by three foot along the pathway that leads to Africville Park, the other behind the apartment building at Kencrest. If street artists could get inside the area, there had to be a way in. I gathered photos taken at a memorial service at the site where Holly was found. I zoomed in on the tags, names scrawled in idiosyncratic penmanship, evoking trains and abandoned buildings of 1980s New York. In this community, graffiti artists don't refer to their work as tags, though that's usually how the public define them. They're called throw-ups. I had a friend in high school who was a street artist. He'd paint in the middle of the night, wearing black under cover of darkness. It was called bombing. I remember how cagey he and his friends would get talking outside their own circles about their art and the clandestine manner in which they'd spread their images across the city. So I knew it was going to be hard to find anyone who was bombing back in 2010 who might remember how they got into the abutment below the McKay Bridge. But I had to try. There were holes in the fence, and those agile enough could probably hop over it just as easily. But what if there was another way in? I reached out to every artist I remembered from back then and asked them to reach out to their friends. I needed to find the artists whose work was pictured in the photos the day of Holly's memorial. The people we could prove had been there. But everyone I managed to reach was nervous. They didn't want to say much. One said he remembered climbing the fence, but couldn't say on which side. A few others responded similarly. Hop the fence, that was it. No one remembered the holes, and no one mentioned another way in. Next, I met with a construction worker who knew the area well. He too didn't want to be named, but he confirmed the scrutiny with which the Bridge Commission ensured the site was locked back in 2010. When the crews would arrive for their shifts, as they did the morning one found Holly, they'd first have to go to the Bridge Commission office in Dartmouth. Then a security guard would take them to the site and unlock it every day. 
the foreman of the site would be given the keys for the length of the shift. Anytime someone had to use the bathroom, they'd have to go get the key, unlock the gate, lock it behind them, unlock it to get back in, lock it up again. Did you ever find the gate unlocked? I asked him. No, he answered, never. And so another door closed, or in this case, gate. It was at this point we heard back from Dr. Patrickwin earlier than we'd expected, just a week after we'd handed over all the files we had on Holly's death. She met us at the office. We were anxious and hopeful. So we're meeting with Dr. Patrickwin again today. And the last time we met with her, we gave her a whole bunch more documents to look over. Hi, Dr. Patrickin. Hey, nice, nice to see you again. Nice to see you. Hopefully she may find some new information for us. Would you be able to make a guess as to the cause behind the bruising and the blunt force trauma? To say what would have caused the blunt force trauma? I couldn't say specifically. Just looking at the evidence, it would look to me like it was a fall or something of that nature. This was a lot to take in. Dr. Patroquin believes Holly did fall, despite all the evidence we've collected that seemed to tell us otherwise. Holly was extremely competent with her cane and she'd never travel without it. She could handle a few drinks. Her orientation skills were bar none. Not only did she employ common sense, she was sharp as a tack, a clear thinker. She could identify where she was, even if she couldn't see. As soon as Dr. Patroquin left, Peter and I couldn't help but launch in. I'm not gonna lie, I'm kind of feeling discouraged. Mm. It just kind of feels like a puzzle. Like the more information we get, I keep circling back around to the same point. We're left with the same information we started with. On the next episode, Peter and I seek out help from a private investigator, a retired cop who worked on the force before Holly's death. 31-year-old women don't reach their demise underneath the bridge for any good reason. Just her location alone makes it suspicious. This is a suspicious death. This young lady would not have done this. This case came off the rails from an investigative perspective very, very early on, and it never recovered. I'm Maggie Rahr, and this is What Happened to Holly Bartlett. This podcast is produced by Ocean Entertainment. Our executive producer is Johanna Elliott. Our supervising producer is Jennifer Camo. What Happened to Holly Bartlett is edited by Fabian Melanson and written and hosted by me, Maggie Rahr. Podcast sound design and mix by Village Sound. For accessible media, regional content specialist is Ryan Delahanty and Andrew Morris is development and production executive. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a review and a rating. And don't forget to subscribe.